I remember TaylorMade or no Ping. Ping came in my rookie year, and they were like, well, "I'm going to give you seventy-five thousand dollars to play Ping clubs, to wear the hat and carry the bag." And I, you know, I don't know if they're used to players talking to them like this, but I'm like, "Do I have stupid written on my face?" I'm Roberto, professional golfer and wannabe business guy. And I'm Dan, business guy and wannabe golfer. We met in college in a boring engineering class, made a connection through golf, and have been kicking around ideas on the business of golf ever since. On the Course Record Show, we talk to some of the smartest folks in the golf business and get the inside stories and strategies driving the business of golf forward. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Holderness and Born. I'm in my fourth season on tour wearing H&B, and the stuff just gets better and better. The cut of the shirt is perfect, the colors pop, and the collar on the shirts are the best in the business. At the end of a hot summer round, that shirt looks as good in the 19th hole with cold beers like gentlemen as it did on the first tee. Yeah, I remember hearing this pitch from you a few years ago when you first started wearing your stuff on tour. And I dipped my toe in by getting a Maxwell polo shirt. And I got to say, I have not bought a different polo shirt since. It's hard to go back after wearing H&B. And living up in Boston, I get at least six good months of layering weather. So I tried that Ward sweater and I got in three different colors now, whether it's out and about with the kids or wearing it on Zoom calls. I get some pretty good compliments about it. And that makes me very, very happy. So that Ward is a staple in my wardrobe now. Agreed. It's stylish without trying too hard. One of their mottos is make it look easy. And I think that attitude really comes through in the clothes. Check out their new spring collection at hbgolf.com. In this episode, we're joined by Joe Ogilvie, a Duke Blue Devil and 15-year veteran of the PGA Tour. He retired from the tour in 2014 and now lives in Austin working in asset management. We covered a lot of ground in this conversation, starting with money. Joe talks about athletes overspending all the way to having Thanksgiving dinner with the billionaire who's famously known for underspending. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I've been invited to some cool things, but Thanksgiving dinner with Warren Buffett. Come on, Joe. That's right. Joe actually has a formula for connecting with people and developing relationships. We also talk about the business of the tour and what he learned from his days on the PJ tour policy board. And we also break down the four majors, the Olympics, and Joe gives us a really, really interesting take on what makes the master so special. So let's go ahead and get to it. Great to be here, guys. This will, this will be fun. Joe, after your playing career, you made an unusual decision to go into investing versus a more typical path for a retiring pro golfer. Tell us why you did it. What made you confident you could succeed? You know, <laughs> I think you have to have a certain, as Roberto can attest, you have to have a certain moxie to be able to say, okay, I can play golf for as a living. So you kind of have that. In, inside of you but I think more importantly I I, I kind of I mean I remember on my on my uh, honeymoon my wife and I were talking about a long-term plan and I kind of said you know at 40 years old I think we'll probably have a couple kids they'll probably be roughly the age of 12 or 13 years old and it might be nice to kind of see them if I have girls it'll be nice to see them as they you know have their first dates and if I have boys it'll be nice to play golf with them or, or whatever and so I kind of had that when I, when I got married at age 27 so I had kind of had that in mind that long long-term plan and you know when I got on tour in 99 I think there were 26 or 27 foreign born players on the PGA tour and roughly there were five guys younger than age 25 and if you look at it now I mean, I don't know exactly how many people are under the age of 25, but I think it's probably 30 that have that are members of the PGA Tour. And so it, it became a math equation for me. It's like, okay, when I'm 40, this is a long-term, this is a long-term trend. And, you know, my business is going to start to go downward. And so I thought, okay, what, what business can I get into that I'm passionate about that I would love? And Warren Buffett calls it, you know, you're, you're, you're uh, whistling to work every day. And investing has always been something I've been passionate about. I've always loved. I think I'm a relatively honest soul, so I care about my clients. And you know, the firm I I, I joined, Wallace Capital, I was an investor, so it always kind of it, it just kind of rang true to me that like if if I'm invested one way, 
I think my clients should probably invest alongside of me, or at least, or better point, I should invest alongside of them. And our money should be working together. And, and that's kind of what we do. And I had no idea if anyone would, you know, place money with me or, or, or our firm, but I kind of had a pretty good, pretty good concept that we, we think pretty well. And, you know, we're going after net after tax returns. Warren Buffett's kind of our, our North Star and it's worked pretty well for him. We'll never be a Warren Buffett. We'll never, we'll never have his track record. But I think the way he thinks is so, is so clear that it just resonated with me. And I think it's resonated with some of my clients and, you know, so far so good. It's been successful. Joe, do you still play golf now? And if so, what, what's the reason for playing now compared to why you played when you were on the PGA Tour? Yeah, so I love, the, I love golf. I mean, I really do. I think it's, it, it's one of those things that you, you don't get to see or you don't get to spend five hours straight or four hours straight with someone very often. And you get to know their temperament. You get to know, you know, you get to know their family life, assuming you ask the right questions. And you get to know kind of what makes that person tick. I don't care if they're a 30 handicap or a two handicap. And I play the game now for enjoyment. And I was really, it's interesting, you know, as you get to know athletes and they retire from the game, they, they're always trying to find that adrenaline rush. For me, it wasn't, I don't play golf to, to have an adrenaline rush or do anything really to have an adrenaline rush. I just kind of play it to get to know someone. And I, I like the game. I find it terrible now and I need strokes especially from you Roberto but I just I love it I think it's I think it's challenging I think it's fun I, I play different shots I don't care about my score at all but I love to play the golf course and I love to play with the guys or the girls that I play with and it's fun terrible is a very relative term I'm sure yeah it's real yeah I guess it's- what do you think PGA tour players underspend on and what do they overspend on well they overspend on planes and you know I think I think it's, it's, it's normal with any athlete. It's the major thing is, is they get their lifestyle and it's called lifestyle creep and they get their lifestyle so large that it's tough to retreat from. And, you know, I mean, I had a very middling tour on the PGA tour. I mean, 15 years, I was, I guess I could fully say I was a journeyman, but you know, I always tell people, I would rather fly private when I'm 60 and have bad knees and a bad back and, you know, grumpy than when I was 26 years old and was perfectly great in shape and everything else. And I may realize at the time, it's the only time, you know, private airplane is the only time that you can, it's a time machine basically for people. And that's the only thing you can't buy with money is time, but a private plane comes close. But I think, I think, I think lifestyle creep and and planes are probably what guys spend too much money on. What about from a performance standpoint, as far as spending, what what do you think they underinvest in? Like, do you think the trainer for a hundred thousand is a waste of money where they could be just strictly from an ROI standpoint? What do you think you've seen guys underspend or overspend on? This is going to be, everybody's different, but I am honestly going to say that they underspend on their, on their wives. That's a weird, that's a weird thing. And what I mean by that, I don't mean diamond rings and, you know, all that kind of stuff. I mean, just like going on a date night with their wife, just one-on-one spend time with your wife. Because at the end of the day, I remember when the tour had me talk to the rookies and things like that, we're talking about finances. I'm like, look guys, I can talk to you all, all about saving. I can tell you about anything you want to talk about, but the number one most important financial decision you're going to make in your life is who you marry. And if you get that right, a lot of things take care of themselves. But if you get that wrong, it's, it's, a, it's a disaster. And I think that spending time and quality time with your wife and, and, you know, and that's date night and that's one or two trips a year where it's just the two of you once you have kids, I think that that's the most valuable thing you can spend money on. Now, if you want performance, everything is is different. But I think having a good caddy, I mean, I think if you did like a Myers-Briggs test with a caddy and really really get scientific on that, because a caddy can, I mean, Roberto, I don't know if you've had the same experience, but I think a, a caddy can help you, but it can also hurt you. And I think really scientifically looking at that is probably something they should spend more money on. Gosh, underinvesting in wives. I, I, I did not see you going there, Joe, but I have to say, um, so true. So true, right? Both, both in golf and outside. So, 
I'll have to book a little date night here once we finish recording just to make sure that I'm not I'm not doing the same. Just a little switching gears a little bit. All relationships aside, what's the single dumbest money move that you see players making over and over again? Single dumbest money move. I mean, look, there's there's a lot. I, I can tell you my my experiences. Rookies are a little bit different than veterans, but I can tell you almost without fail, most veterans, you can tell when their career starts to go a little bit like this is when they buy the big house. And they typically buy a giant house. And their burn rate just goes, starts to go vertical. And, you know, they get swamped. Or maybe they buy a house and they, they haven't sold their previous house. And, you know, they just get that little extra stress. And that little extra stress causes a little bit extra stress in their marriage. And then it just causes. And so it's, it's, it's that lifestyle creep. And it, it just creeps into their game and it creeps into everything else. When I was at my rookie orientation, the lady who did the player benefits and, you know, had been handling guys' retirements for 30 or at least 30 years because she retired in my tenure on the tour. I sat with her at lunch and she said, she just looked at me and she was, she said, don't get a $10,000 mortgage. She was like, just don't get a $10,000 mortgage and you'll be fine. She said, yeah, every yeah. phone call I get about players trying to get their money out early they have a $10,000 mortgage, if not more, if not more. Okay. So she was like, don't do that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, look, there was, there's a guy who, who turned 50 in the last couple of years and he bought the big house, you know, I think like 20,000 square foot house in Orlando or something like that, or North of Orlando and one of the great players. And, you know, he will tell you, name will not be mentioned, but he will tell you like, I built this house and it, it was like an albatross and his game went straight down and, you know, houses are just there's things you know and i i think if guys saved and or, or guys at least spent it on experiences and not had the overall cost i mean i we call it burn rate with our clients and i sit the clients down especially if an athlete i'm like okay let's go over burn rate let's go over your assets and let's make sure those assets are producing money as opposed to costing you money i mean a house i live in austin texas we have high property taxes in Austin, Texas, let's say 2%. So your house is going to cost you about three and a half to 4% of the assessed value. And if you think you put it in those terms, if you live in a $2 million house, that's 4% is 80 grand a year. That's a lot. So it's not a, a house isn't an investment. It's a sunk cost. And it's something you can get joy out of. But I think a lot of athletes overspend on the houses. What about on the upside? There must be some advantages to being a PGA Tour pro when it comes to finances. What are some of those things that players enjoy that perhaps the everyday man does not? It's a, it's a blessing and a curse. They benefit from, they have an advantage over most professional athletes in a sense that golf by almost by definition is you are, you almost self-select by being around probably a more successful, a maybe a little bit smarter demographic, I think. And also you don't have guaranteed income. So golfers, by their nature, we're living in this kind of like, you know, we eat what we kill type of thing. And I think that that helps a little bit. The issue is with all athletes, I think, is that, you know, most of us have gone through the stages of life where you're this college kid and maybe you're a poor college kid, maybe you've done okay. But the bottom line is your parents are giving you money or you're earning your own money and you're a poor college kid. You might be on a scholarship and it, 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 it's okay. Then you graduate and you've got your first job. And if you're a golfer and you're not elite, like I wasn't, you're playing mini tours. And then you kind of go through the stages where you might go on the, now it's called the corn Ferry tour or some other tour. And, but you, you're learning life, right? And you don't have any money and you're staying at flea bag hotels and things like that. And then you're starting to have some success and then maybe you meet a girl and then maybe you buy your first house. And by this time you're 26 or 27. And so you've kind of gone through this stage of life. Normal people go through that stage of life and it's five or six or seven years later, unless you're in tech, it kind of speeds up. But, but the bottom line is you learn how to live and you learn how to buy your first house and you learn how to whatever. Not a lot of athletes that have success on tour are getting younger and younger and younger is at 23, they're worth a couple million bucks. And they're making a couple million bucks. So all of a sudden, 
they can buy the big house, they can buy all this other stuff, and they don't go through those struggles that most people in life go through. And they don't learn those stages of what I call them. But it's interesting, when you go through that and have instant success and instant riches, you know, you don't have that grit, financial grit, I call it, that other people have. Golfers do, though. Colin Markell is going to be around the the smart businessmen of the world and things like that. So golfers have an advantage of that. I mean, if you just play the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am and talk to your amateur partner, hopefully he's not a celebrity, you will learn a lot. I mean, that, that amateur partner can teach you a heck of a lot. And it, it's an education. I mean, you can get an education on the PGA Tour, even though you're not classically educated. I want to zoom in on something you said in the last answer. You talked about this the uncertainty of a player's income and the eat what you kill mentality, as you called it. To me, that just sounds like a lot of risk. And, you know, I was always trained to think all else being equal, risk is a bad thing. But yet you called it an advantage. Tell us more about why that is. Well, I just think that it's an advantage from a budgeting standpoint and from a long-term saving standpoint. You read all the financial books and they're like, everybody should have three months savings or whatever as a, as a emergency fund, or maybe it's nine months in an emergency fund. Well, golfer, I always thought, I'm like, golly, I've had to have two years of an emergency fund because I could pull a back or, or an elbow or, you know, I might go in a slump. I mean, Steve Stricker went in a slump that he was terrible for two years. And then I think three straight years, Steve Stricker got the comeback player of the year for three straight years, or maybe it was two straight years. But, you know, so you go in these slumps and so you have to have dry powder to kind of, to get you through this thing. And so, I mean, every PGA Tour player wish they had guaranteed money, but I think to a certain extent, it makes you a little bit more anti-fragile. And I think that that's to a certain extent, not having that guaranteed income makes you a little bit more anti-fragile, at least it should. Circling back to the relationships you make through golf and the AT&T Pebble Beach is a perfect example of that. You meet somebody that is literally a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. It's a very unique landscape that golfers get access to. And if you're a person like you who's interested and connects with people, how do you navigate that? You know, it's interesting. These people are human, right? I mean, and and they they want to know a little bit about you and they they look at athletes and like, oh my God, I could never do what this guy does. And I think a lot of PGA Tour players look at the CEOs and they're like, what do I have in common with this guy? And I've always thought about it or or this, or this woman. And I've always thought about it like, okay, everybody is from a hometown. I don't know where they're from, but I'm going to ask them. Everybody is probably married or if they're not married, they have a girlfriend or a boyfriend or whatever. They, they may or may not have kids. If they're a CEO, chances are they went to college. And chances are they have some type of interest outside of golf. They might be hunters, fishermen, art people. They might be whatever. And if you can't find common ground between those five questions, where you went to college, where are you from, are you married, do you have kids, what are your interests outside of golf or, or business, you, you, you probably, you're not going to have a relationship with mostly anybody. And so I always thought if you can ask those five questions and, you know, kind of drill down, your chances are you're going to know someone and it's a Kevin Bacon game. You can, okay, I know this person, you know, you're probably going to know this person. You start to have that type of thing. And then it, it's amazing how these guys, you know, I got credit for asking these questions and they're like, oh my God, like he, he, he cared like about me. I'm like, well, that's just a human person. I mean, it's not that, you know, I wasn't reinventing the wheel here, but it's amazing when you do that, you, you, they almost get a a connection with you because you're interested in them. Everybody's interested in us. Everybody is interested in a PGA tour pro because they just can't. I I know this now, but I didn't know it then, but they just can't get it around their brains that someone can be this good at a sport that they've tried and spent thousands and thousands of dollars on, and they're still terrible. But it, it's amazing how these guys, if you're just interested in, in the other person across whoever you're playing golf with, I mean, they kind of gravitate to you. And I was very lucky. I mean, you look at the AT&T, I still keep in touch with probably six or seven of my partners at the AT&T, and I probably had, you know, maybe 
10 partners throughout the years. And you know, these, some of these, I'd say three of them are some of my best friends to this day. And, you know, that's the, that's the connection you can get in golf that you just can't, I don't think you can get very many places. I read that one of the coolest relationships you made in golf was with Warren Buffett himself. So did you ask him the same five questions that you outlined before? Or were there some different questions, like a sixth, a seventh, perhaps even an eighth, that you were just dying to ask Warren? Yeah, well, yeah, I've asked, yeah, maybe in the hundreds. But so so it was great. This, I was playing the, at the time it was a Nike tour, and now it's Corn Ferry Tour in Omaha. And they did a story about me. I think I was leading money winner at the time and how I like investing or whatever. And I put in my bio, I put who are your heroes. I put Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. I figured, you know, they're pretty smart guys. And I just admired the way they thought and, and things like that. And so they did this story on me in Omaha. And to his credit, I mean, you know, he's Warren Buffett. His people or his secretary, Debbie Wasonic, reached out, found the hotel, I think through the tournament, found the hotel that I was staying at. I was staying at a Best Western, which I think he, you know, as a value guy, I think he appreciated that, that I wasn't overspending. And, and she calls me at the hotel and she goes, Joe, this is Debbie. Can I put you on hold? And I said, sure. And I thought it was Debbie from the front desk. And this guy gets on the phone. And he says, Joe, how you doing? Warren Buffett. And I'll never, I'll never forget the same voice and everything else. And I was like, I'm doing great. I just finished the pro-am. And he goes, hey, you know, I read this article. I'd love to meet you. Why don't you come down to Berkshire Hathaway tomorrow at 10 o'clock? Now, this is Thursday. And I've got a 1230 tea time at I forget, Champions, I think it was called. In, Champions in Omaha. Retreat. Run. Champions yeah. Run. Champions Run. And so where Berkshire Hathaway, Omaha is the greatest city in the world for directions because it's a 100% a grid. And I think Berkshire's headquarters, so it's yeah. like on 32nd Street or maybe it's 40, I don't know what it is, something like that. And so I go down there at 10 o'clock and, you know, I sit down there. I thought it was going to be one of these things, knock on the door, take a picture and shoot this young kid out the door. But he shows me around Berkshire Hathaway for you know, 10 minutes or whatever. And then we sit down and we start talking and we have the, we just had a great conversation. I, you know, I couldn't, you know, I didn't talk to him about investment much, but he was drilling me on what the, what the life is like for a young tour pro. I mean, he was fascinated by it. I mean, here's a guy who was worth at the time, it was 1998. So he was probably worth $20 billion. And he was more interested in me. Well, that's not true. We were equally interested in one another. And that just goes to show you how wonderful of a man this guy is. And then, you know, we really got to know each other. He has this thing called the Buffett Cup or had this thing called the Buffett Cup and where he would invite CEO friends and chairman of the boards and C-suite executives. And it was a charity event. They'd pay $10,000 and then they would, he would do a Q&A, play golf and some people play tennis. And I went the first year, the next year was 2001 and I was going on 9-11 and I, you know, 9-11 happened. I was in Dallas heading to Omaha. It never happened. And so I never got up there, but I wrote him a note and everything else. And, you know, about a month later, his daughter called and said, Hey, dad, missing seeing you. What, what are you and your fiance doing for Thanksgiving dinner? And we ended up going to Thanksgiving dinner with the Buffets for a couple of years. And it was, it was great. And he, he gave me, and Roberto was sponsored by Mutual of Omaha as well. And so whenever Mutual of Omaha, every year I would fly up to Omaha to kind of, the guy that ran the marketing program was a guy named John Hildenbettel. And I would take John out to lunch or dinner. And then I would email Mr. Buffett and just say, hey, I'm going to be in Omaha during these times. John Hildenbettel doesn't know this, but I would, I would give Warren like a, a one or two week window that like, if you could have lunch or dinner, I'm going to be in Omaha sometime this time. And he would say, let's have dinner on September 6th. And so lo and behold, I would call John Hildebittle and say, hey, can you have lunch on September 6th or dinner or whatever? And it was, it was great. I mean, I, I was like getting a, it was like getting a graduate school course on not only how to think, but how to live your life, how to, how to just be a, a, a good citizen. And he is, I mean, he's a, he's a treasure. He's, and, and just for him to give someone who's just a middle of the road tour player and probably not even, that's probably generous to my career, but 
for him to give someone that much time, I mean, we probably had seven or eight dinners together. And I mean, when I retired, I went up to see him the week after I finished Greensboro, two weeks after I finished Greensboro. And we had a two hour lunch. And then I went back, he took me back to Berkshire Hathaway headquarters and I met Todd Combs, spent an hour with Todd Combs and spent another, you know, 30 minutes with, with, with Warren in his office. And it's just, I mean, he's a treasure and he, he thinks so clearly. And I mean, if, if, if everyone thought like him, the world would be a hell of a lot better place. Who buys dinner? You know, it's really funny. So um, he bought, <laughs> he buys, but I think, you know, he, I remember we went to the movies, we went to the movies during Thanksgiving dinner. And I think the great story is he's so great. He, he's, we went to this movie theater that was like 20 minutes away from the one that was closest to his house because he had this free pass and, and it was great. And so we get up there and we're, we're buying Cokes and he loves Coke. And, and, you know, we're at the popcorn stand and, and I go, I got to get, I got to get popcorn. You, you had dinner, you had it sober for Thanksgiving dinner. And he's like, well, I know I shouldn't let you, but I, I'll let you this time. And so uh, I can always say that I bought Warren couple cokes in a, in, a, in a popcorn but i mean he's 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 incredibly generous and he does it i mean i'm just not the only one i mean he's got a, a bunch of people that he does this for and it's it's i don't think there'll be anyone like him ever omaha is a very unique place you mentioned that you know we were both with mutual of omaha for a number of years and i ended up with another group out of there who've become close friends and it's a very unique city there it's very civic-minded and it's a tight group and they're all kind of 1950s, 60s, greatest generation nostalgia, like the best of America is still in Omaha, Nebraska. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, I think at one point, Omaha, Nebraska had more Fortune 500 headquarters than Denver, Colorado. I mean, it's a, it's a, there's been a lot of interesting things going on and it's a great town. I mean, it really is. I mean, the whole Midwest in general, is a, it's, it's a special place. Where do you think a corporate dollar is best spent in golf? Player endorsements, tournament sponsor, client entertainment, television advertisement. If you had a dollar to spend in golf, where would you spend it? Yeah, probably wouldn't be television advertisement. You know, I think that it it really depends on the company as well. I mean, you can make an argument that if you do do TV, you're, 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 you're blasting it out. And the old saying that, you know, I know, I know, I'm spending 100% of ad dollars. I just don't know what 50% of it's working. I just don't know what the 50% is or whatever that old thing is. I, I think that if you do, if you really think about it and you hire the right people that are spending your ad dollars, and it's, I think it's a, probably a combination of TV, player, corporate entertainment, and that's with the player. I mean, you know, Mutual of Omaha, I think, did a pretty darn good job, and they measured it. I think that really works. I, I, I do think that if you spread it out, I think that works the most. I mean, look at Titleist. Titleist, I mean, I'll never forget they were paying Tiger $3 million or something to use the ball, the ball and maybe the glove at one point. And when Tiger left Titleist to go to Nike, Titleist sales went up because they used the rest of the money they were paying Tiger to just expand their ball program to the middle of the road. I mean, I I don't know from a corporate America standpoint, I do know this, that I remember TaylorMade, when we were talking about their driver program, you know, they were paying everybody to use the driver. And I remember talking to Mark King about it when he was running TaylorMade at the time. I think now he's running Adidas or Adidas USA. But he was like, he goes, look, if we spend $10 million or $15 million to buy the count, which is the count of the most played driver in the United States, or the, on the PGA Tour, we think that's worth 100 to 150 million dollars in incremental sales worldwide. Well, if your margins on a driver are, you know, 40 to 50 percent, so you spend 15 million dollars and get an incremental 150 million dollars in sales. That's the best corporate. That's the best advertising you could possibly do is buying the count. In 2017, TaylorMade got bought by a private equity company, and. It's been kind of a race to the bottom on endorsement dollars since then. But because the, the interesting thing is, if TaylorMade calls me and they say, we're not going to pay you to use the driver anymore, okay? And all the other companies kind of look at each other and yes. they say, we're not going to pay a middle of the mall tour player to use a driver anymore. I still have to use a driver. I can't play without a driver. And they, no, I, think, that, that, I think they that, finally that, realized that. I think that. I think they did, but I do think that there's, you know, 
having the count and winning the count matters. And so I think that there's, I mean, you know, assuming you can find a driver, but I think there, there are power in numbers. And, I, you know, it, it's funny you should say that, is that because I always talked to Fincham about when he was, when I was on the board and I was on the pack, I go, you know, what makes this whole PGA Tour thing go round and the idea, because there was always talk about, okay, should PGA Tour players get paid a stipend if they miss a cut? Because they do other things. I mean, if you have me meet with John Deere's salespeople during the John Deere Classic and I go there and I miss the cut, well, I'm still out, whatever it cost me that week, say $3,000. So let's just say it's 3000 bucks. So if I miss the cut, I'm, I'm out $3,000. And so there was, a lot, there was always a pressure on the tour to say okay we need to we need to pay these guys a stipend even if they miss the cut they do it majors they don't at pg tour so you know i had always talked to Fincham about like hey look as long as the titleists and the tailor-maids and the callaways of the world are paying us x amount of dollars to play their clubs in a tournament and that was there were some years it was 150,000, some years it went to 100,000. When I first, my rookie year on tour in 1998, I got $1,500 or 1999, $1,500 to play an Odyssey putter and $1,500 to play a Callaway driver per week. So that's 3,000 bucks. Per week. Per week. I didn't have to wear the hat. I didn't have to wear the bag or carry the bag. I didn't have to do anything. I remember a tailor made, or no, Ping. Ping came in my rookie year. And they were like, well, I'm going to give you $75,000 to play pink clubs, to wear the hat and carry the bag. And I, you know, I don't know if they're used to players talking to them like this, but I'm like, do I have stupid written on my face? Because I played an Odyssey putter and a, Taylor, or in a, in a Callaway driver when I was on the, you know, Nike tour. I got paid, I'm going to get paid 90 grand this year and I don't have to wear a hat or a bag or anything. And you want me to take a $15,000 pay cut and I got to wear, you know, play 14 clubs. And they were like, huh, well, no one's really ever came back to me on that. And I'm like, well, that's, you know, anyway, but I, 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 obviously that's changed. Right. And if you're not, if they're not paying the rookies enough for them, I mean, I've never thought a PGA tour player should lose money. If I, if I go out there and lay a bagel and, and, lose, and miss 20 cuts, I, I don't know. I have a hard problem with guys, guys, losing money so if titleist and tailor-made and callaway and tricks on and and the oems are not paying guys enough that they can't break even at least and make put a little bit of money in their pocket i think that then you start to look at stipends per week but i don't know if it's like that now but yeah, i was is... always like you know as long as that as long as that that unwritten rule was was followed I always told Fincham, like, I didn't think that we had to pay guys a stipend. But as soon as that gets broken down, you know, I think you do. Well, it's getting there. I think the endorsement money is from the equipment companies has gone down. And then the cost of flights and hotels and all that stuff has gone up significantly, right? Like, that's, yeah. that's what gets lost in, like, the corn ferry conversation. The purses stay the same, but it used to be seven fifty for a caddy for a week. You know, it's for 1500 bucks now. There was one of the big companies, the word on the street was two or three years ago that they did all their market research and that if you weren't a top 10 player in the world, it just didn't matter. Didn't move the needle, right? That was what what came back to them. So, you know, Dan could speak more to that kind of marketing dollar analytics, but, and that's what you're seeing. I think the counts matter less. And I think having the eight iconic players is really the only thing that people latch on to. Dan, you want to lead us into the Big picture, solve all the world's problems, not just people's problems, but the whole world's problems. Well, not all the problems. Don't worry, Joe, we're not going to put that on you. Just the big problems in the business of golf. And I know you've thought about this before because I read an interview that said that at one point you were interested in being the commissioner of the PGA Tour. If that's right, what made you say that? Any interest in doing that again at some point in the future? Yeah, what made me say that was being extremely naive and stupid. Now, I look, I think that I, I think being a commissioner of a sport is one of the all time great jobs. The reason I say that is because it's really hard to screw up. I mean, Mike Wan from the LPGA Tour, he just retired. I mean, the LPGA Tour was in dire straits and he turned it into 
it's on financially fine footing. But if you're a commissioner of the NFL, Major League Baseball, Gary Bettman of the NHL has a little bit harder deal, the NBA or the PGA Tour, I mean, you're the only thing on TV that is live and that you can't fast forward, you can't watch on tape. I mean, it's what Warren Buffett calls it. It's the ultimate ham sandwich business. If the business is so good, a ham sandwich could run it. And so I always look at businesses that, you know, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but if I ran that business, I'd look a hell of a lot smarter than I am. And so I think that that was, that was my main thing. And plus I thought that, you know, Dean Beeman, I think is probably, he was just really good from a, from a commissioner's standpoint. I mean, he understood the players, he understood a lot of different things and, and he was a creative guy. And I, I thought that, you know, having a player's perspective is probably extremely valuable, certainly at Ponte Vedra Beach. But, you know, I got to hand it, Jay Monahan has done a great job. It has not been easy being a commissioner in this COVID world. And, you know, I, 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 think, that, I think that train has left the station. I, I, love the, I love the business of golf. And I was a little bit more aggressive. I mean, in 2011, 2012, I mean, look, I thought the PGA Tour should absolutely buy the Ryder Cup or force a sale of the Ryder Cup. I, I, wasn't, I was probably going to break a few too many eggs. I mean, I thought we should buy the PGA Championship or maybe even merge with the PGA of America and figure that out again. But, you know, I think I think it's, there's a lot of interesting things that can happen in the world of golf. And I think there's a lot of interesting things that can happen in the future of golf. They'll figure it out eventually. But you need to, unfortunately, you need to, you need to make a few people mad at you. You served on the PGA Tour Policy Board. What does a player who served on that board know that the rank and file PGA Tour player does not know? That's a really, that's a really good question. Let me, let me start off by saying that when you are placed, I was, I will say that I was a terrible board member <laughs> because I didn't know what I was doing. And what, what happens is, is you're placed on that board. The way it works is you have four independent directors and they are typically captains of industry. They're CEOs or they're, you know, we've got, I think now we've got Mary Meeker on there who was, who ran Morgan Stanley's research at one point, and she's she's got her own VC fund. And you, you had Randall Stevenson, and you've got you know Vic Ganzi. You got you got a bunch of really smart people on there. And so as a player, you're going on there. You have no formal board experience. You know, I think I went on there. I, think I was 36 years old or something like that, and or 30, a little bit younger than that. And you know, you have no formal experience at this, and so you're kind of you're talking about the golf aspect. You're not talking about the business aspect. So what they, what the tour, re, what the tour utilizes their player directors for is everything that has to do with golf. And, but it's really hard for a PGA tour player. It's the same thing with playing in a pro-am is you're like, golly, I mean, how, how can I, if I don't agree with these captain of industry, you know, how do I speak up? And so it's a, it's a board that is, it's good. And it's, I, I encourage everyone to do it, but at the same time, it's, 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 it's hard. It's, it's, it's intimidating to a lot of guys. And I wasn't as intimidated as I should have been probably. <laughs> and I wish I had, wish I had a little bit more training when I went into it. But I think that I, I do think that the, the tour tries to have the player's best interest at heart, but it's, 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 it's hard. What is the biggest threat to the PGA Tour, in your opinion, today? Is the Premier Golf League, a new startup league, where can it go wrong? You know, it, it's going to be fascinating to see what happens in the next four, well, five to ten years. Premier Golf League, I, I think I think that was dead on arrival. It's interesting, but I think it was dead on arrival. So the PGA Tour is very U.S.-centric, and I always argued to the PGA of America, I'm like, look, it's incredibly naive to think that you're going to have three out of the four majors be U.S.-based 25 to 30 years from now, right? I mean, I, I just think that that's naive, especially when you're probably the weakest major. I mean, PGA of America, the PGA Championship is probably, if there's a weak major, that's the, that's the weak one. And so I think the PGA Tour just being U.S.-centric is probably the weakest link. And as, as the world globalizes, or maybe we're going through this little hiccup where we, where everybody's for themselves at one point, but I think that that is trying to navigate that is is interesting. I mean, the ATV tour and the tennis tour 
I always looked this up because I always thought, you know, with Greg Norman's world tour or whatever, in 1989, I think the tennis tours merged and the 20th guy on the money list in the tennis tour made like, I don't know, $800,000. And last year, the 20th guy on the tennis tour made like $800,000. And it went from a U.S. centric tour to a basically global tour. And so, you know, now things are different because you have more eyeballs, you have more more points of distribution and things like that. So you can do certain things that you couldn't do before when you have a globalized tour. But I think that that's an, that's an interesting thing. And the other thing is, is that golf like tennis is, you know, imagine if the NFL, Major League Baseball, the NHL and the NBA didn't own their playoffs. And, you know, that's what the PGA Tour, we don't own our playoffs, right? We don't own the Masters. We don't own the US Open. We don't own the PGA Championship. We don't own the Open Championship and we don't own the Ryder Cup. And, you know, those are the five most highly rated tournaments in our sport. And the PGA Tour doesn't benefit from a, from a TV standpoint. And that's, that's interesting. I mean, I always thought that, look, you got to start with a Ryder Cup and then kind of go from there. And we tried to do that at one point. I mean, we tried to, there's a few of us that tried to buy the Ryder Cup when it was in, its, when the Ted Bishop thing happened. And we were going to kind of make it a Pebble Beach ownership type thing and make the Ryder Cup for the betterment of golf. Because I think eventually, this is a controversial subject, but I think eventually PGA Tour just says, well, we're not going to have 23 out of the 24 players in the Ryder Cup as our members. And we're not going to negotiate the television rights and have that in our package. I mean, that's just bonkers. It's, I mean, you wouldn't, it, it, it's bonkers. And so that's going to happen. It's just a matter of time and it's just a matter of who wants to, who wants to be the bad guy. I'll say one more thing. I think that the fifth major or what could become the fourth major is the Olympics. I, I think that that was, I watched it and I was enthralled by golf in the Olympics. I just thought it was great. Now they had the Zika thing going down there. So they didn't have everybody go there, but I just think that that's interesting. And if you, if you take the PGA championship and move it every four years, to coincide somewhere in the geographic area of where the Summer Olympics is, that gets really interesting in my opinion. But I, I think the European tour, the U.S. tour, them coordinated more is great. And I think that it should help lift all boats, but we'll see it's still early. But I, th I think that that's, that's probably a really good thing. I would go after Asia. I mean, Asia is the most important piece because that's where the Gulf is going to grow. I mean, you've got between India, China, Southeast Asia, you've got what, three and a half billion people. I wouldn't, I mean, Europe's important because it's really rich, but you know, the future is in Asia. The tour opened an office in Tokyo a couple of years ago. Um, I thought they had one in Shanghai too. Maybe I not. Just, I think just Tokyo. But I mean, I look, I think it's, it's, I mean, look how many Koreans. I mean, there's what, 16 to 20 Koreans on the PJ tour now? Yeah. I think that the tour really in they do keep the players' interests at the forefront, and the players have it so cush. You literally drive like four tournaments, and you go from Torrey Pines to, and you you go from yeah. Orlando to Tampa to. I remember playing. I played the WGC in Shanghai, and we're over there, and Bill Haas is just bitching up a storm about being in China. Okay. <laughs> And he's just absolutely like my dad, you know, he's like, my dad was gone all the time, but he was in like Milwaukee. He said he wasn't in China. Okay. And, I, and like 10 minutes later, Jay Monahan walks by and Bill looks at me and we look at each other and Bill was like, well, if he's going to make me come over here. I'm glad he came too. And it was just a great, it was a great moment. I love, I love that. And, and I think that, yeah, look, for the biggest guys, sponsors are, are going to make you. I mean, it's going to be, I'm, I'm assuming every one of Tiger's contracts says, look, you're going to play in Asia twice a year. Yeah. And we'll figure that out. And so the PGA Tour is going to accommodate that somehow. I mean, that's why the Zozo and things like that are, are in Japan. Yeah. And they, they're just, the markets are just too huge to ignore. Yeah. Joe, I have a friend who says the Masters has become its own professional sports league that has a one week season. What do you think is the main driver behind the Masters elevating its stature so far above the rest of professional golf, the other majors included? If you just think about the raw economics of the Masters, and I mean, they own the TV distribution rights to every country in the world. 
the income stream of the masters is just enormous. I mean, I can't imagine probably for one week, I got to think the merchandise tent is the, is the highest grossing per square foot store in the world for one week. I think I bet you out does every Apple store during black Friday, if they launch an iPhone during black Friday. I mean, I, so you look at that, you look at what they did at Berkman's, you look at, so they have all this income coming in. And the greatest thing about the Masters and the most powerful force that the Masters has is you think about every other sport league, sporting league is basically they pay the players in between 48 to 52% of the, of the, of the income coming in. So they, they reinvest in the business and they've got this, it's this flywheel effect where they just keep putting more and more money into it. They make the, you know, the, the journalists have the greatest area in the world. The players have the best practice facility in the world. The members have, you know, all that stuff, but it's, it's to their credit, they keep investing and making it better and better and better. And I think, you know, it's really interesting because the tour, and I get it. I mean, the tour is always catering to the players and things like that. They also cater to the sponsors, but I, I think the other thing that, you look at the best tournaments. I mean, the Masters is the Masters is the best tournament in golf, and they they almost cater to the patrons first. I mean, that's their number one priority. I mean, you go play the Masters. I mean, Roberto, I, you know, you're a Georgia guy, so you may not you may not agree with this, but I mean, if you're a PGA Tour pro, you don't feel very comfortable at all when you go on to Augusta National. I mean, you, you're not. It's the first place you go to that you're really not, you don't feel like you're the number one person that should be there. And it's probably the only tournament you play. Well, the majors are all like that, but I mean, the guys national, especially, I mean, you, you don't feel like you can pick up your cell phone. I mean, you feel like you're walking on eggshells as soon as you step out of your car in that parking lot. But if you're a patron, you feel like, okay, I'm the most important person here. And it just so happens that that's the best tournament there is. Now, if you watch this year, you quickly realize, or if you watch your near and dear to my heart, if you watch the Duke Blue Devils play this year in Cameron Indoor Stadium, you quickly realize that what makes these things special and you, what makes Cameron Indoor Stadium special and Augusta National, it's the fans. And these tournaments need to cater to the fans and need to cater to the patrons. And what COVID has taught me, at least, and when I view this, is that you know, the difference between a good tournament and a, an elite tournament is, is, the, is the people around it and the fans and, the, and that energy that those fans create. And I think the, you know, the Masters does it the best, and they happen to care about their fans and their patrons the most. It's great, and they make it great because they make it about the fans. Well, what's the saying? Uh, the Masters is Disneyland for adults. It checks out that merch tent. I think that thing had me one pull away from getting divorced. My first, my first time playing the Masters, the guy in front of me was a Japanese guy, and he goes in and he had seventy-two thousand dollar bills, American Express, boom, UPS straight to Japan. He goes, it'll be there before I get there. Get back seventy-two thousand dollars. I'll never forget it. I've never heard the perspective you brought up of it being fan centric or patron centric. I've never thought about it that way, but when you, when you said that it is hundred percent correct. I've never thought of it that way. I mean, think about what they've done. They bought every house around it and they made parking better. They made, I mean, every, everything. It's how do you make the fan want to go there? I mean, that's every, every other tournament starts with the players and how do you make their life the best? and how do you make the players want to go there? The Masters said, no, 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 no. I want to make the fan experience the greatest experience it could ever be. And by the way, I'm taking away your cell phone. You can't tweet. You can't take pictures. You can't act like a moron. I want you to just <laughs> absolutely have the greatest time and respect the game of golf. And I'm like, okay, well, that's an interesting way. I mean, Charlie Munger always says, invert, invert, invert. I think that the Masters inverted that whole thing, and they said, okay, we, we, we wanted to start with the fans. Talking about the game more directly, your personal opinion of, about protecting the game aside and how you feel it should be played, put, put that aside. Do you think the big increases in distance on the tour give the product a higher or lower value in the marketplace? 
my romantic, you know, from a, my romantic feeling about golf is it makes it far less artistic. I mean, I, I think Bryson's a hell of a, a, an amazing talent or whatever, but I mean, to watch him play is really boring, but you know, it's, it's interesting. If you just look at golf, I'm surprised the scores aren't lower than what they are. And, and the reason I say that is because people always complain about the equipment. I always say that, look, John Deere's done more to influence this than any other equipment manufacturer because, you know, it used to be the greens were seven on the stint meter. I mean, Augusta in 1978, I think was 7.8 on the stint meter, and now it's whatever, 13. So what's happened is you can only, I think we're at our limit. You can only get these greens as fast as they are right now with the slopes that are on the green. I don't think you can put the flag sticks, you know, one pace off the edge. So you got to have them three paces off the edge. And so you're at the limit of what you can do to these golf courses. The greens are as fast as they, they're going to be. Um, sure, you might be able to give them firm, but Mother Nature is going to dictate that. But what else are you going to do? I mean, you're at your limit. You can, okay, you might make an 8,000 or 9,000 or 10,000 yard golf course. But, you know, if that's the limit, the equipment and the players are only going to get better and better and better. And, you know, I don't know, I don't know where it stops. And so the scores are just going to go, I'm surprised there aren't more scores in the fifties. I mean, I predicted, I think six years ago that you'd have multiple scores in the fifties per year and it hasn't, hasn't got more, but you, it hasn't come out that way. Yet. I'm I've been very, very surprised. actually. I think the explanation for that is, you might be six years removed from remembering how hard the golf courses are on the tour. I think that's the biggest misconception that the, you, you click golf channel Thursday night and they're running the scores on the bottom and you're like, Kevin Tway, nine under, they're playing another easy golf course this week. Like you said, they can't put the pins any closer to the edges. Yeah. They, you yeah. go play the golf courses and they are so, so difficult and somebody will shoot eight or nine under. If, I think if they went and played like what most people consider just like a championship course, like a good course in Atlanta with the pins five off the edges, I think you get five fifty nines the first round. I really yeah, do. Yeah, that's probably right. That's probably right. And there, there's an edge. I mean, you know, you, you've got them, you've got them on the edge. But I just think the guys are hitting it so long now that you just haven't. You know, I remember used to when I used to look at a golf course and I'd break down a golf course. I'd look at it like, okay, how many par fives can I get in two? And if there was two, I'd say okay par 72 that means par 70 how many wedges will i have and if i had you know seven wedges i'm like okay that's i'm gonna make birdie on half of those so my par is you know, 67 and a half or 66 and a half and that's kind of how i broke down but you know you get those guys now i mean they have wedge every hole not every yeah. hole but except the par threes but i just thought that i thought that with with that in mind i just thought you'd see more people breaking 60. Yeah, But then I watch these guys and I'm like, there's no way I ever played against them because they're so good. Yeah. It's, it's the tours funny. You, 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 you can, you can play two, three weeks, two, three months in a row and just be like, I don't know how I can ever shoot a score that can get me in the top 10 or, you know, that can contend. <laughs> right. And then you just right. have a couple weeks where you go shoot and, and you're in fifth place or you're in contention. And all of a sudden you're one of those guys and there's 60 guys on the other side that are like, I can't break par out here. Like how are guys yeah. breaking par out here? It's a weird it's deal. The, it's, it's completely mental. It's a, it's amazingly yeah. hard mental game. Yeah. So zooming way back out again, where do you see pro sports going in the next 25 years or so? You think we've peaked in the amount of money left in sports for players in terms of prize money, et cetera, or can it just keep growing the way it has the last, the last several years? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that you're just going to have more and more eyeballs that go to sports. And so more and more eyeballs translates into more and more money. So maybe the models have to change. You know, sports are all getting, at least in the U.S., the rest of the world, you've more or less been able to gamble on sports. The U.S. is now getting into gambling on sports. There'll be a little bit more money driving available to the players through that. But I think that, yeah, I mean, I think people's, people's pocketbook is pretty wide open for sport. And, you know, people like to root. People like to, to root for someone. People like to be fans. People like to see greatness. So, yeah, I think, look, in 25 years, I just think that sports are going to be better than 
than they are now. I think there's going to be more money. I think it's, they're going to be, they'll probably be more global. I think the world will be a lot smaller place in 25 years. And you, you will see purses on the PGA Tour and, and certainly the majors will, will keep on going higher. All right, Joe, you survived the hard questions. We're going to change this up a little bit. And the premium on these next few questions will be on speed over depth. So I'll tee up this next segment called Tappins. You ready? I'm ready. All right, let's get into it. Favorite course you've played? Pine Valley. Favorite course on tour? Pebble Beach. Who's the best player in the world today? Dustin Johnson. Will another player ever win 10 or more majors? Yes. Which tour stop has the best fans? The Open Championship. What's the one rule in golf you'd love to change? I don't like the divots in the middle of the fairway. If they've been repaired by sand, I think that's ground under repair. Joe, you're in finance. This last segment should be very easy for you. It's called buy or sell. Okay. Buy or sell, Tesla. They just moved to Austin. You're not allowed to ask me about Tesla. I mean, I love Elon. I'm rooting for Elon. But okay, we'll leave it at that. There's, there's stocks over value. Uh, <laughs> buy or sell Tokyo Olympics 2021. I'm buying. Buy or sell Berkshire Hathaway. Buying. Buy or sell Bitcoin. Selling. Actually, I'm not selling. I don't even understand it. I think it's a... Look, we're the incentives of a government allowing Bitcoin to happen. I mean, you just want to be disintermediated. Everybody loves the term disintermediation. So a government wants to be disintermediated by a by a program? I don't understand this. I don't understand it either. I read an article about people down to one guess on their passcode for millions of dollars. Of millions of dollars. One <laughs> yeah. death. Yeah, one death. I mean, what happens if you hit an EMP and the, the whole thing gets fried? I mean, I don't, I don't understand. Well, that's a, that's a whole other question. Buy or sell self-driving cars? It's going to be a long I hope. God, it'd be great, but it's going to be a long time. Buy or sell Major League Baseball? Buying. You're bullish on sports. All right, Joe. I love sports. I love thanks sports. A, Thanks a million for joining us. This has been a really enjoyable conversation, and uh, I learned a lot, that's for sure. Good luck, guys. I, I, I'm honored to be on it. It's going to be, a, uh, it's going to be fun to watch you guys. Dan, what were your takeaways? I, I really enjoyed that conversation. Joe has a lot of experience in golf and has a lot of passion for it and a lot of passion for what he's doing now. Uh, you know, what, what are your headlines? First one for me is just the sheer swagger on the guy. I mean, from going from golfing to investing in what seemed like a really seamless way, and then just kind of how he kind of went about his business, joining the policy board and just telling an equipment rep when he was a mini tour player to, you know, do I have stupid written on my face? Things like that just really stood out with me. And I just love his ability to be that confident in himself and that self-assured. That stood out. Yeah, no question. Definitely doesn't lack for confidence. Uh, the other thing that stood out, getting invited to Thanksgiving dinner with Warren Buffett is cool, but did he just call his family and, hey, I got a better offer from a billionaire? Like, how does that conversation go with your family? I, I, I don't I don't know. I don't think I'll ever find out. But, uh, um, but God, I mean, I, 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 you know, I applaud him for going. Yeah. Every family has different issues they're dealing with uh, during holidays. But, you know, Joe kicked us to the curb for Warren Buffett is not a very common one that you hear at the, around the Thanksgiving dinner table. No, it's not. And just to know how that all started was so interesting, right? I mean, he, he described sort of his five go-to questions around what's your hometown, what's your partner or spouse like, and where'd you go to college, et cetera. The fact that he was able to codify that and, and get so much mileage out of that with so many relationships, including the Warren Buffett one, I thought was really smart. Just his way to like really find a way to to, to almost program the small talk that was in there and uh, kind of go back to the well with that same process. I, I, I truly respect that. It's so simple, but so brilliantly simple that I, I really liked it. It is simple. It's amazing how you can create a connection with a very simple, very simple strategy like that. Yeah, I thought it was smart. I thought it was really smart to kind of play that back. So uh, definitely, definitely some takeaways for me to put that into my professional and personal life too. Yeah. Okay. The other one that jumped off the page to me was 
under investing in wives. And my wife gave me an immediate like eye roll, you know, told you, I don't, it was very, it was very hit, hit close to home, obviously. Um, that was super, super interesting and has to apply well beyond golf. I think within five minutes, I had a reservation booked for a Saturday night and was calling a nanny to come see the boys. Cause I, when I saw that, I was like, I wasn't sure if this was a golf and business podcast or a life podcast, but whatever it was that really resonated. I thought it was really interesting advice that was totally unexpected from what we thought we were going to get out of that question. Yeah. And that, you know, I think the difference with professional golf or professional sports is, you know, I have friends that are consultants or, or travel and are spending hundreds of days on the road every year pre COVID, but the, the Monday to Sunday schedule when you're playing the tour and, you know, mom was at home with kids is different, right? Like even that just grinding consultant life, you can count on maybe a Friday or a Saturday with the family. And, you know, you sit around player dining and it's like, what are you playing? And it's like, I'm playing the next three. It's just like a casual conversation, but that means you're on the road for 21 straight days. And if you have kids at home, that's 21 straight days, uh, you know, solo parenting. And so I, I think a guy who's played 399 starts, if you really think of it that way, it's not shocking that he thinks that's where players underspend. Yeah. I thought that was really insightful. What did you think about the PGA tour policy board and his tenure on there with some of the top 50 CEOs in America? What's your take on that as, as a business guy? I mean, I, I had no idea who was in the policy board until I saw this. I thought it was many more people who were like deep in the sports game. And to see that there were people who were completely from different walks of life, total captains of industry in their own walk of life was super interesting. But it makes me wonder, like, what's what's the meeting like when you've got Mary Meeker talking to James Hahn about something? Like, what's like what's the common ground and how does the how do you move forward the agenda like that? I don't know if you have any insight on that, Roberto, based on the on the tour, but I uh, I'd love to be a fly in the wall in that meeting room. I ran for the policy board and didn't get elected, so I have not served. But to your specific question, the feedback I've gotten from guys who served is that they can the players can only vote on competitions issues. So changing the cut from 70 to 65 or making a tournament an invitational, things like that. They can't vote on the business of the tour. And what they've said to me is that the independent directors really listen to the players on competitions issues, that they really feel like they're the experts on the golf side of things and that they actually have some sway in the room. I would think that coin would flip completely when it comes to, you know, kind of business strategy and, and the, the uh, financial side of the tour, but that's, that's, that's what I've heard. Yeah, that's interesting. I went there. Uh, what's, what's sort of the biggest decision that you heard that goes through the policy board just to give the listeners a flavor of what, what kind of stuff goes to that forum? Well, you know, changing the cut from top 70 to top 65 is one that they did a couple of years ago. And it's basically move the cut one shot every week. So that's a pretty big change, but the potential ones, let's say that are kind of always simmering below the surface are changing top 125 full status to top 110 or top 100. When they changed the LA open to an invitational, you took the field from 144 to 120. There's no more Monday qualifier. It's no longer the LA open, which was one of the oldest, most historic tournaments on tour. It's now the, you know, Tigers invitational basically. So that would be an example of something that the the players on the policy board would have to vote on and approve. And where does the commissioner fit in this? Like, are there some things that are clearly delineated to the, to the pack to decide or, um, or does the, does the council sometimes serve as a sounding board for the commissioner? How does that relationship work? The commissioner is at all the pack meetings. So the pack has like 20 players on it. And then there are four on the policy board, four players that are actually have a vote on the policy board. So the commissioner comes to all the pack meetings and I've, I've served on the pack for a few years and you know, he listens. I think, <laughs> I think Jay is more involved and is more Fincham looked like, you know, he was getting his fingernails pulled off in some of those meetings. Cause I just think, his patience level for 
diving into the details of of the tour with 20 PGA tour players, I think wore them out a little bit, but I think it's a good way for the commissioner to keep a beat on what the players are talking about. I think it does serve its purpose, even though it's technically powerless, those 20 guys have no power, no voting. You get 90 minutes, you know, ear of the, of the top brass at the tour once a quarter. And that, that has to count for something, right? Definitely. Especially when the meetings in China coming off your dinner with Bill Haas. <laughs> there are no meetings in China, fortunately. <laughs> okay. Oh, that's good. That's good. Um, yeah. Overall, I just thought it was really cool to get the perspective of a guy who's made 400 starts on the tour and really spent his 15 years going a couple levels deeper, right? Like talking to the commissioner, talking to the C-level guys on the tour. And I mean, you know, brainstorming ideas about buying the Ryder cup. That's not your typical tour player. So I really enjoyed getting to talk to Joe and actually have a lot more questions for him. Yeah. You get, it's nice to know that there's someone in there trying to shake things up, bringing these ideas, you know, pushing people out of their comfort zone and, and thinking big. I think that was a, I really admired him for, for doing that both as a player and, uh, and for keeping the, uh, the engine going. So uh, I thought it was a great conversation. Agreed.